London Aesthetics Forum. Before we start, I want to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for their funding for this series. And I'd like to introduce Jonathan Gilmore, who is Associate Professor at Chocolate City University of New York at the College. Um, and he is a philosopher of art, also a critic, uh, works in philosophy of law, which I happen to know. Um, he has a book in press, which I am anticipating greatly because it's on stuff that I'm really interested in, called Apt Imagining with Oxford University Press on Emotional Responses um, to Fiction. He's written another monograph called The Life of the Style, Beginnings and Endings in the Narrative History of Art, um, and has written a, on a wide range of topics in the philosophy of art and also the philosophy of law and philosophy of art on emotions, imagination, epistemology of fiction, painful art, and now talking to us about sculpture. And I realize I don't have the title of your talk in front of me, so perhaps you can announce it, because usually people have a PowerPoint with the talk and I just look at it. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Stacey. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, and thank you all for, for coming today. Um, it, the weather suggests you should be outside and, and not listening to this. But um, So the title is, for want of a better title, is Material, Medium, and Sculptural Imagining. That's why you're here. Okay, so I want to discuss a, a common complaint about certain forms of figurative sculpture, and um, it's described in a very elevated fashion in Kant's, this is Kant, or a sculpture of him, in his third critique, where he wisely observes that one can offer a beautiful description or pictorial representation of things such as furies, diseases, devastations of war, that themselves are decidedly not beautiful. But then, perhaps not so wisely, he withholds from sculptures this aesthetic independence of an artistic depiction from the thing in the world it depicts. And he says, in sculptures, Art is almost confused with nature, and thus they, the sculptures, must confine themselves to representing only beautiful things. Okay. Now, the problem is, of course, he wouldn't have to travel very far uh, to see works, devotional works like this, um, where beauty is hardly the aim. Um, you know, it's going the, the, the kind of grotesque uh, um, emphasis on Christ's wounds there, are meant to emphasize his passion and suffering, and, and a beautiful depiction in this period. This is a um, um, medieval, probably 1360, 1365 um, Pieta. Um, beautiful depiction, actually, would be uh, beside the point. Okay. In any case, uh, it's a complaint that's also made in Baudelaire's review of the 1846 Salon with the snarky adolescent title, Why Sculpture is Boring. Okay. And, and there the poet suggests that whereas painting and literature can elicit thoughts of abstract ideas, absent objects, fantastical states of affairs, sculpture cannot. It can provide an experience whose content excludes an awareness of the work itself as an ordinary object in our environment. Baudelaire says, as brutal and positive as nature herself. Uh, or in Ad Reinhardt's um, definition, you can use this for your metaphysics course, uh, sculpture is what you bump into when you back up to look at a painting. So anyway, these you know, quite invidious comparisons echo the standard charge against sculpture made in Renaissance notions of the paragone or the contest of the arts that it cannot render what painting can because it cannot depart from the actual shape of what it depicts. Hence, in a tradition 
that goes back at least as far as Pliny's story of the adolescent boy who leaves evidence on a statue of Aphrodite of what he did with it, maybe with her, while he was locked in a shrine overnight. Um, I guess this is a PG-rated talk, so we'll talk about what he did. Uh, anyway, the explanation of why viewers of sculpture respond with real emotions or desires, erotic or otherwise, this is, this is the explanation appealed to, is that they mistake the sculpture for the real thing. Right? It serves as a kind of proxy. All right. Now, there are, of course, better ways of accounting for our feelings for sculpture than that we take them, the sculptures, to be real. That is the real things they represent. And the familiar framework that I adopt and what follows identifies the object of our response as not the physical artifact before us, but what the artifact elicits us to represent via the imagination. And so in a moment, I'm going to lay out some features of that framework, you're probably familiar with it, that applies more or less consistently across all the arts, okay, sculpture, painting, theater, literary fictions, and so on. And then I'll turn to three different grounds or causes of our responses to sculpture in particular. And my question is whether, once we distinguish the imagined object responsible for our emotions and other responses from the physical object or physical artifact before us that elicits that imagining, does Baudelaire's type of criticism still hold? When I imagine X in engaging with a sculpture, do I respond just as I would if I were to believe or perceive X, that is, if I were to encounter it as a real thing face to face? So this question can be posed in both descriptive and normative terms. Descriptively, the question is this. Are my responses to what I imagine modeled in relevant ways on those I have to what I merely perceive or believe? Okay. Is there a kind of continuity between the way I respond to what I imagine and what I respond to, how I respond to things in real life? But my interest in, interest in this talk, and interest in the book, but this was going to make it too long if I included this, this, this discussion, my interest is mainly in the normative question. Are what counts as reasons or justifications for our responses invariant across an engagement with what a sculpture elicits us to imagine and an engagement with analogous objects or states of affairs in real life? Or, this is the question, are there features of sculpture, qua sculpture, that serve as reasons for act or fitting responses that would not serve as reasons for those responses for the real thing that the sculpture represents? Okay. Now I'm speaking here about epistemic or and affective reasons, reasons that justify how my response presents something as being. So I'm not talking about uh, practical reasons for your response. You might have a very good instrumental reason to respond with love and devotion to a monument depicting your country's dear leader. I think maybe Trump is there, right? Okay. It, you might have a practical or instrumental reason to respond with awe, okay, or devotion, right? without there being any property of the monument or dear leader himself that would justify the emotion. Okay. So, in this talk I want to do two things. The first is answer the question of how sculpture can properly evoke responses in ways that ordinary objects cannot. And the second is answer the question of what it is to respond to a sculpture qua sculpture, that is, in a way that sustains the distinction between it and other arts. So and I think I've come somewhat close in answering the first question, but remain far from a satisfactory answer to the second. Okay? Um, that is, I 
those and make some progress in um, distinguishing sculpture from ordinary artifacts or ordinary objects, but not, not obviously um, from other forms of art. So first, a quick sketch of that framework of the cognitive imagination that I was referring to earlier. In Kendall Walton's Influential Theory of Fictions, a work of art functions as a prop in a pretense, what he calls a game of make-believe. And so a simple game of that sort is exemplified by children pretending to duel with sticks wrapped up in tinfoil, as if they were swords. Some of the rules that structure this game may be formally agreed upon, but others have a naturalness in that context such that without being explicitly specified or stipulated, they still govern, these rules still govern what counts as properly playing the game. So for example, in this, presumably, without their kind of agreeing about it, agreeing to it in advance, if one of the sticks breaks, so has the sword that within that game it represents. Now Walt proposes that works of art, verbal and visual, can have analogous roles as props in more tightly constrained forms of pretense, where, for example, we imagine of a fictional story that we're reading a narrative of actual events, or imagine of Bernini's Rape of Persephone, that we see Hades abducting the young girl. Now, as Walton acknowledges, no artistic representation can describe or depict everything in the scenario that it asks us to imagine. So much of what we imagine in the case of any minimally complex representation comes from a variety of sources, and it's not clear there's any sort of systematic way to identify these sources. But one of these is um, the set of beliefs that we import into the content of the representation. Okay. So in this Cellini, Perseus, and Medusa, if I'm supposed to imagine that the creature's head has been separated from her body, then I can infer from my beliefs just about anatomy okay, that it's also true in this that you know, she's dead, that Medusa's dead. Okay. Okay. Um, so we also um, import um, or we, we also fill out the story with just quotidian inferences from, that we make from what's depicted in the work. So in Michelangelo's Roman Pietà, Jesus is dead, but his body is intact. So I can infer that this must mark within the story represented what I meant to imagine of this. It must mark a moment soon after his being taken down from the cross. We rely on knowledge of the conventions of the genre of what's depicted. I can see Jesus caress the folds of Mary's cloak. I can see that as indicating that it's true within the representation that he'll be resurrected. Not because I believe this is true of the real Jesus, but because I know that's part of the story typically represented by such works. Okay, just as I know that you know, vampires in any given story about vampires, that they sleep during the day not because it's true of real vampires, there aren't any, right? But because it's just a standard expectation of the genre, right? And of course, these imaginings must be partly quarantined so as to block some forms of import, principally those beliefs and inferences that salingly contradict what's positive is true within the world of the work. Those beliefs are typically kept from being entered into the contents of the imagining. Okay. And this quarantine also limits the export of our imaginative representations into our beliefs and perceptions. 
Thus, what we imagine is typically held offline, prevented from being integrated with our real-world directed beliefs, memories, and perceptions, as well as our motivations for action. I don't seek to free Persephone from Hades' grasp any more than I intervene on stage to somehow stop Othello from murdering Desdemona. Finally, some things that are true of a representation are not true in the state of affairs or of the object that the representation asks us to imagine. And this is because of the joint perspectives, internal and external, that we can take toward any representation. So this internal-external distinction will be very important later on. The external stance on a work of art describes it in terms of its identity as an artifact, with reference to its style, medium, technique, and other aspects of the vehicle of representation. The internal stance, by contrast, describe the contents of that representation imagined as if they were real. So from the external perspective, Michelangelo's David is carved in emulation of idealized Greek and Roman sculptures of gods and sculptures of athletes, both in the broad features of his contrapposto and in some of the more fine-grained ones, such as the um, hard edge of his lips, which, unknown to Michelangelo, served in classical sculpture to keep the gilding in place. Now, from the internal perspective, David's posture and facial features don't bear any such historical resonances, right? Uh, he isn't, you know, preening before his contest with Goliath, right? He's the little guy in the fight. Okay. And such discovery of what's true in a work isn't obviously the end of interpretation. Rather, it's conceptually prior to and serves up the ingredients for what we might properly call an interpretation of a work, where we look for what the work is about, what it expresses, what it evokes, what its meaning is. In other words, before an interpretation of a work is offered, we need to identify the work, only with a sense of the contours of the story or state of affairs that the work asks us to imagine can I ask what the work means or aims to express. So, uh, Arthur Danto uh, used to talk about this uh, bronze cat that was chained to uh, a railing on Columbia University's campus. And he was never sure if this was a uh, sculpture of a bronze, of, of a cat that was chained to the railing, or if it was a sculpture of a chained cat. Okay? Right? You know, if you're going to inter interpret the work as meaning something, expressing something, you have to identify it first, figure out what is it meant to, um, what is it asking us to imagine. Right? And I don't know the answer yet. Uh, in any case, you know, in practice, there could be a kind of reflective equilibrium between the interpretation you offer of the thing and how you identify it, right? You might want these two things to kind of um, mutually support one another. Okay. And last sort of caveat. Uh, in specifying what a work of art asks us to imagine, I've resorted to stating a series of propositions. For example, we imagine that such and such is the case. But such propositional imagining doesn't exclude affective, sensory, experiential, or other forms of imagining. Rather, in the framework I'm employing, those non-propositional forms of imagining can supply the contents of the propositions that we are elicited to imagine to be true. So, the work I showed you earlier prompts me to propositionally imagine that Hades abducts Persephone, but also to visually imagine the event as looking like this, 
with his hand on her thigh, in certain respects, but not in others. Um, I don't think, I don't see Hades in looking at the sculpture, I don't see Hades as white, and I don't imagine Persephone as cold, even though the marble used to compose Hades and Persephone is, is white and cold. Okay. So, now, let's start the body of the talk. Okay. I want to identify three grounds of our responses to sculpture. Only one of which, the third, seems to me to identify a way in which our engagement with sculpture, qua sculpture, is discontinuous, descriptively and normatively, from our engagements with the things in real life that sculpture depicts. Okay, the first of these is found in the way sculptures evoke affective and other responses from us just through soliciting us to imagine something that would evoke those responses if we were to encounter it face to face. Appealing to the imagination helps explain how it is we can have such responses to a representation of either marble or wood, just as how we can have such responses to representations composed of paint or canvas or inscribed in words on a page. These representations elicit us to engage in certain imaginings, imaginings of what's before us, or of what we read or hear, and our affective and other responses follow from the contents of those imaginings in ways similar to how they follow the contents of beliefs and perceptions. Of course, the explanation of why mere imaginings evoke such responses is controversial. Is it because some of our affective responses are source indifferent? Are they automatic quasi-perceptual responses that initially proceed independent of cognitive identifications? Do they trigger real-world directed emotions for which no special explanation is needed? And so on. That's the paradox of fiction. I say whatever the answer, in the approach I'm addressing here, the explanation of our responses is invariant across our engagements with what our imaginings present and what our truth-act attitudes, such as beliefs and perceptions, present. Why we respond to some state of affairs is answered the same way. Whatever representational relation, imagining, believing, remembering, desiring, and so on, is plugged in to connect us to the object of our response. Okay. And let me stress here and in what follows, I'm not assuming that all works of sculpture are designed to elicit such an imaginative engagement. In calling works of his minimalist contemporaries specific objects, this is Carl Andre's uh, um, uh, tiles, uh, Judd stressed how they invite being understood not as representations, but as things made of identifiable materials, placed in significant configurations in the viewer's actual environment. Frank Stella, echoing this, said of his paintings tautologically, what you see is what you see, okay? Rejecting the idea that, you know, these works are meant to conjure up some kind of counterfactual imagining or, or, or serve as kind of windows onto some, some alternative world. Yet we should note that when it's said of such works, such as Sarah's core 10 steel sheets, like in, as in Tilted Ark, or Carl Andre's lead four tiles, when it's said of these that they offer a give a novel configuration to our own actual egocentric space, it's not true that they literally remake that space. 
what they plausibly do, and I think this is what our critics and our students are trying to say, what they plausibly do is induce us to imagine that the space around us and around them has such and such a character. Okay. In any case, as you probably figured out, if the imagined object provides grounds for a response that would count as grounds for a response to that object if it were taken to be real, then we haven't identified anything peculiar to or prototypical of how sculptures evoke our responses qua sculpture. Sculptures just like nature, as Baudelaire charged. So, a second kind of approach focuses on the fact that a sculpture, being typically three-dimensional and sharing with us the same space, tends to invite a form of engagement involving bodily awareness. When we encounter a work of sculpture, we experience forms of motor or bodily simulation that allow, allows us to feel as if we inhabit the world of the work. And this goes beyond propositional or perceptual imagining or inferences made from beliefs and perceptions about the content of the sculpture. The background theory here is something like this, that just as we can visually imagine something without actually perceiving it, imagine that snowing, right, without seeing snow falling. So we can simulate performing an action without actually doing so. Okay? And an example of this motor simulation, since that's actually a sort of um, unfamiliar concept to many people, although we're very familiar with perceptual imagining. So motor imagining would be something like this. Um, if I ask you um, of um, this painting of Rembrandt, by Rembrandt, which hand he's holding his mall stick and palette in, you'll tend to imagine your own hands moving from their current orientation into the position of the represented hands in the painting. Okay? And that's how we figure out, so it's his left hand holding his hands. Okay? But what's interesting is that this motor imagining, what you just did in your head, actually takes about the same amount of time and seems to be, reflect the same neural, neural and cognitive uh, mechanisms as when you actually do move your own hand right, to do that. Okay. So that phenomenon suggests that imagined or simulated movement is executed by the same neurophysiological mechanisms as the corresponding actual movement. And a related kind of simulation involves involuntary motor representations that occur through the activation of so-called mirror neurons, which are triggered both when a person actually performs an action and when she sees someone else perform an action of the same relevant kind. It also appears that the secondary somatosensory cortex, see I said I'd do something empirical today, which registers oneself being physically touched, also becomes activated when both seeing others being touched and when merely imagining seeing others being touched. So the proposal here would be something like this, that as we stand before a sculpture, we form various low-level, tacit, motor representations that simulate certain experiences that constitute a kind of empathetic identification with some dimension of, this work, of the work. So as we focus on Apollo reaching for Daphne in Bernini's sculpture, we ourselves simulate reaching. We don't do it but we represent it in, a, in our motor imagination. 
as we attend to Daphne straining to elude his grasp. The neurophysiology governing our own straining in that fashion is activated. Why we don't really perform the action seems to be explained by an additional inhibitory neural signal that prevents such movement. And, and we know that, or at least that's suggested by um, studies of people with brain lesions who have the part of the brain that actually is responsible for the, those inhibitory uh, responses actually being destroyed or, or, or damaged. And so they just do things that, they're that, the, that the doctor or the experimenter does without realizing that they're doing it, like putting on glasses, taking off glasses even though they're not wearing them. Such bodily imagining might also operate in a response to stationary representations. So Michelangelo's slaves bear the crushing weight of their marble prisons. Their condition is a psychic one, something more than physical restraint. But to generate that meaning, the visual appearance of the sculptures elicits us to imagine ourselves being weighed down. Similarly, columns that exhibit a kind of antasis as in pestum, a swelling you know, in the middle, right? They appear to bear a heavy load, not only because, in fact they do, marble or limestone is heavy, but because their swelling in the middle is designed to elicit from us a form of motor imagining of undergoing a kind of vertically oriented compressive force. Unfortunately, for a theorist looking for something distinctively sculptural here, such explanations of, a response, of our responses to what we imagine of a sculptural object do not posit mechanisms that are different in kind from those operative in our affective responses to real counterparts of what we imagine. Indeed, although psychologists and philosophers from the late 19th or early 20th centuries, just Theodore Lips, addressed a variety of empathetic identification that we can have with actual objects, and Greg Curry has written about this, <coughs> and the Romantics did so as well. Almost all the current research supporting this possibility of our, of our empathizing with objects or artifacts actually comes from studies of um, motor simulation that we have for other real human beings. However, I think that a certain kind of limit to such motor simulation or motor imagining can suggest a different kind of ground for our response to sculpture that actually gives us what I'm, I'm looking for. And it's this. Unlike propositional imagining, motor or bodily imagining is constrained to some extent by our awareness of the apparent physical relation between the particular three-dimensional material configuration of a sculpture and the size and disposition of our own bodies as we stand before it. Just keep this here for Only within a certain range of parameters, for example of size, does a work of sculpture elicit the kind of motor imagining or simulation I just described. Now, in principle, a physical artifact of any size could be used, according to Walton's theory, to elicit from us an imagining of such and such an object before us. And that's because, barring certain cases of imaginative resistance and metaphysical impossibility, our imagination seems to be free to represent anything on the basis of any or no prop at all. So, um, I once had, uh, uh, as a professor, the great uh, theorist of beauty, Mary Mothersill, 
And um, this is a period in which um, semiotics was very much the fad. And her response to semiotics was to hold up uh, one of her matchsticks and say, I suppose this could represent the French Revolution, but it wouldn't be a very good symbol, would it? Right? Okay. And then we knew not to bring up semiotics after that. Right. Okay. Um, so there's purely kind of contingent and free relationship between the object that does the representing, right, and the thing that is represented, the thing that we imagine. But empirically, it turns out that it's actually comparatively difficult for objects with certain sensory qualities to evoke imaginings of objects with very different sensory qualities, especially if what's to be imagined and what is perceived are in the same sense modality. And that's because the actual perception of something, after seeing it, and the perceptual imagining of it in your head actually tend to exclude one another. And an inadequate visual representation may make it harder, paradoxically, for viewers to visually imagine as real a work's contents than would a representation that doesn't aspire to show how things look. So these painted wood sculptures of the Northern Renaissance, they paradoxically inhibit imagining what they represent more than, say, the plain, merely varnished wood ones do. Okay? Because this sort of um, strange color of uh, uh, Christ's skin actually gets in the way of our imagining a kind of naturalistic uh, complexion. An analogous phenomenon, phenomenon in relation to motor imagining is reflected in the way a tiny sculpture is limited in not having the necessary relation to our bodies. In its capacity, it's limit, these are limited, the tiny sculptures of David, are limited in their capacity um, to elicit from us a kind of imagining of a giant person. Okay? And so these tourist trinkets uh, um, just don't work to allow us to imagine what, say, Michelangelo's David does, even though you know, it's the same shape and so on. Okay. What's helpful in this sort of example is that it points to a way in which a feature of a sculpture that can only be, it can be described only from an external standpoint, say its actual color or its size, how that can make a difference in our responses to the content of what we imagine, to what's true only from an internal perspective. For example, the David is powerful. Indeed, the scale of an object can elicit responses, such as awe to the object that it represents, without providing any reason for which that emotion is merited, that is, any reason given by the imagined object itself. And this is the uh, um, memorial to, uh, to the victims of the siege of Stalingrad, and then Brown York's baby. And it's simply the size, like I'm saying, that can evoke a response from us without any kind of um, uh, inference being made from that size to some content uh, or some meaning or something like that. It's in fact that it has us imagine. So the question is whether we can explain our responses to sculpture partly through appeal to properties that it has only as a sculptural artifact. Its scale, color, medium, properties of its production, relations it has to other artifacts. Where that is, these properties are not just sources of more information, propositional, perceptual, or experiential, about the object or state of affairs that we're elicited to imagine. If such an explanation is available, then we've identified features of sculpture that properly evoke our responses qua sculpture, 
features that distinguish it from what might properly provoke a response qua ordinary object or state of affairs. Okay, so I want to look at some examples, and these are going to just kind of like probe different um, um, dimensions of this phenomenon. Okay. So, it's externally true of Michelangelo's Pietà that he's represented Mary's face in a pure, unveined area of the original marble block. The pristine quality of the marble elicits from us an imagining of Mary herself as unblemished in a spiritual sense. Okay. But of course, any judgment of a real person's character on the basis of her complexion, right? Um, you know, which is a common bias that often is identified as beauty of soul, right? That would be unwarranted, but it's not unwarranted here. In fact, it's, it's, it's how you're meant to respond. Likewise, Michelangelo represents Mary as a young woman, not because we are, in fact, to imagine that she is so young. In fact, she appears younger than Jesus. But because such an appearance induces us to see her as pure and ageless, uncorrupted by earthly decline. Her figure is also much larger. It's the wrong to talk about the Mary about her figure, but anyway. Uh, her figure is also much larger than not representing Jesus, but in what we imagine as a response is not that she could have had a career as a, you know, a rugby player, right? <laughs> uh, but rather that her embrace of this 33-year-old man is like that of a mother cradling a child. And this is a, a work, an earlier work that didn't succeed in, uh, in uh, creating that uh, impression. Okay. In Mark Quinn's work, the medium is often taken from the very thing it's molded to represent. So in one work, not this one, uh, fortunately, he used the liquefied placenta of his child to mold a sculpture of the baby's head. Okay. And in an earlier series, a much tamer one, he cast at least eight pints of his own frozen blood into a self-portrait. What the self-portrait represents, what we're to imagine seeing, is Mark Quinn, the way with the painting of Rembrandt, we're meant to imagine seeing Rembrandt. However, what's true of this externally, that it's, that it's an object made of frozen blood, leads us to imagine Quinn differently than if it were cast in wax or bronze. We see it with disgust, or perhaps with a kind of aura possessed by relics, or perhaps, this is what I like, as precariously balanced between insoled form and formlessness. Okay? And so I think the container that sustains the frozen state of the work actually might be part of the work. And in that way, Quinn is in some sense making salient just what's true of us in general, right? That we only occupy these forms for a limited amount of time. In any case, whatever your preferred interpretation, the point is that in using flesh to represent flesh, he evokes a response to what's represented that would not arise in response to the real thing himself. Okay? And beyond that, you know, he's playing with different notions of identity, right? like blood type versus uh, um, uh, appearance and so on. Okay? So Michael Baxendahl has argued that a feature of Renaissance limewood sculptures that would have been salient to contemporaries of these works, but that is pretty much lost on us today, is that some were carved in ways so as to accommodate and follow the internal mobility of the wood as it expanded and contracted, which would be uh, that one on my left. Okay. Uh, whereas others, like this one, were carved against that tendency of wood, risking fracture, but also giving the works a distinctive expressive quality. 
Like you think that how can they hold that form? And so although two sculptures of a Madonna and child may look similar to us, evoking the same imagined state of affairs, to a culture sophisticated about wood as a raw material, one work evokes a state of affairs that's stable and timeless, and the other that's tensioned and dynamic. Something closer to home in terms of our familiarity with materials would be Ava Hess's use of pliant latex and fiberglass, unstable materials likely to oxidize, turn brittle, and discolored over time. And this gave her works a kind of poignancy, as in this is repetition 19 from 1968, in which we might imagine of this group that they're trying to live up to the austerity, regularity, and the invariability of their contemporary minimalist peers, but being mortal, they fall short. And that mortality is heightened in some other works, some other versions of this work, and Ava has a road of these objects. I feel a little guilty when people want to buy it. <laughs> I think they know, but I want to write them a letter and say, it's not going to last. I'm not sure what my stand on lasting really is. Part of me feels that it's superfluous. Life doesn't last. Art doesn't last. Okay. By contrast, the uh, commonplace plastic and polystyrene used by the Chapman brothers in re reproducing scenes uh, taken from Goya's Disasters of War, right? the plastic serves to leech the emotional expression from these scenes, transforming the horrific gore and suffering of Goya into something like a bland department store display of mannequins, or just as cynically, into a kind of oversized, um, snack-together children's toy. Those of you who have children probably recognize that, that kind of toy. When Edward Degas exhibited The Dancer, the enormous controversy that ensued was due in part to his asking audiences to imagine a contemporary young girl widely characterized as bearing subhuman primitive features from the stage in place of imagining an idealized figure uh, which would be typical of uh, traditional sculpture. But the loathing that critics expressed was also prompted by the dancer having been sculpted in wax. And this is the wax version. It looks like bronze, but it's not. Uh, not cast in bronze, evoking associations as wax with ephemeral models of sketches, wax anatomical figures in science expositions, and cheap kitsch entertainments such as Madame Tussauds. I guess that's not too far from there. Okay? And this impression was strengthened by the actual linen, satin, and, and real human hair that Degas fixed to her. And the point is just that the material with which the girl was created inflected how she was represented in people's imaginings. Relatedly, what we take to be the process by which material is formed into a sculpture can shape how we respond to the contents of what it has us imagine without supplying more facts, propositions to be believed, or things to be perceived, internal to that imagining. So while Rodin's carvings in marble are smoothed out with even surfaces that appear regular, soft and translucent, like the skin of the figures the works represent, his castings in bronze and plaster with unrefined, unpolished surfaces pitted and seamed from the inner surfaces of the mold, these evoke imaginings of individuals that are both more vigorous 
and more present or immediate. So the sculpture of Balzac, for example, although he worked on it over several months, it appears like a rapidly and vigorously carved monolith, presenting an intense, raw, and imposing individual, even though the sculpture doesn't have much of a visual correspondence uh, to the writer Balzac himself. Analogously, Robert Gober painstakingly creates his works by hand, even though these are typically domestic objects, such as sinks, cribs, and doors, for which he could have substituted their real counterparts, you know, bought them at the hardware store or Ikea. But knowing this, that he created these by hand, brings us to see whatever is represented by his works in very intimate, almost tender terms. So the sink, although a mere copy of a mass-produced version, invites us to see it as like the human body itself, with pouring spouts suggesting the bodily organs and fluids. And it's not accidental, right, that Gilbert began to show these at the height of the AIDS crisis in the mid-1980s. Our beliefs in the standard subjects of sculpture can inflect our attitudes toward what a particular sculpture represents. So Klaus Oldenburg's wall switch, right? It's about many things, but one seems to be dominion over one's body. Perhaps dominion or control that declines with age. So these, he's done a series of these, they suggest both nipples and flaccid penises. But being so ridiculously outsized, this is like human size, right? And made of cheap vinyl, which was introduced, by the way, you know, as a substitute for leather, right? That is skin. Um, these works ask us to see that theme, that decline with age, that are kind of uh, just physical mortality, from a somewhat earthy and, and amused perspective. Okay. And finally, our knowledge of the typical possibilities and limits to a genre can shape how we respond to what we imagine on the basis of works in which those typical boundaries are transcended. So Bernini's twisting, arching, gasping figures transcend traditional sculptures, which were typically oriented only toward a single point of view. These ask us to imagine their objects as so configured only for an instant in time. And his surfaces, rather than emphasizing, like Michelangelo's surfaces, the, vir the virtues of stone. These surfaces are carved and polished and incised to mimic other materials, fur, hair, skin, ropes, sweat, and fire. And this is just astonishing, this cloak and the way it weighs there, and it seems almost translucent. Any viewer, even dimly aware of the putative limits to marble, would experience the represented story of the mar marvelous metamorphosis of Daphne's body, where she seems to flow into the laurel tree that she becomes. As inflected through their marvel at the mar metamorphosis that the sculptor has brought about in his material. By contrast, a sculptor's choice to refrain from exploiting a medium's potential could have a kind of analogous effect. So the neoclassical sculpt sculptor Houdan, this is 1775, uncharacteristically for an artist of his period, 
leaves the visible traces of the cutters and scrapers used to model a bust of the composer Gluck. And this is a finished work, it's not a, a modello or a study for another one. He leaves these visible traces in order to elicit us to see the man himself, Gluck, as frank and sincere, unstagey or unpolished like, like his operas. So these cases illustrate how external features of a sculpture, features that don't directly give us propositional, perceptual, or experiential information about the objects that we're imagining, inflect the contents or our reception of the contents of that imagining. We are, and this is an important distinction, we're caused, I want to say, to feel a certain way about what the sculpture represents. Without that cause, always counting as a reason feel that way. That is, these causes wouldn't count as reasons if we were to encounter the imagined thing face-to-face. -face. Of course, that's not typically how we experience these effects. As Hume notes, the mind has a great propensity to spread itself on external objects. So, through a process of projection, we often take a feature of our experience as if it's an independently existing property of the world. I might, for example, from drinking too much coffee, feel anxious, okay? But immediately I'm going to search around for things in my environment, say the pending release of the Mueller report, okay? <laughs> as a reason that justifies and grounds that feeling, okay? The same thing when you are in a mood. If you're depressed, you find mood Concordant, concordant, mood, you find, you find features of your environment that, that fit with your mood. You tend to not find salient those things that are discordant with your mood. So, I might be led by the medium, scale, technique, or other external feature of a sculpture feature of it as a material object, say that it's made of meat, like Janis Sturbach's, not Lady Gaga's work. I might be led by that feature it has as a, uh, described from an external perspective to respond with a particular feeling toward the imagined object that it represents, but I'll take that feeling to be justified by some feature of the object, a feature it putatively possesses independent of the mode by which the imagined object is represented. This phenomenon, by the way, I'll save you, occurs in many of the biases identified by social psychology. Even if it's your beauty alone that causes me to think that you're intelligent or more of a good, the halo effect, I'm likely to posit some dimension of your behavior as the real reason why I hold that opinion. If you tell me that this wine is very expensive, I'm likely to think I can identify aspects of it that confirm that quality. Okay? And so we can fabulate regularly, right? About the choices, say, between two things that are in other, in other respects totally identical. The important difference here from those ordinary objects or people onto which we might project certain qualities is that a sculpture, as a work of art, 
is essentially constituted by what is to be imagined of it. We not only imagine the contents of a sculpture, what state of affairs it depicts, but we imagine that content in some manner determined by its medium, scale, process of creation, potential for destruction, and so on. There's no alternative, in other words, to the heroic, inward-focused David that we imagine in connection with this sculpture by Michelangelo, even though, of course, there are different representations of the David that prompt different imaginings. So the structure I'm describing is something like what um, Peter Lamarck describes um, when he talks about the opacity of literature. Um, there's no perspective, alternative perspective in which Dickens's um, characters, the veneerings, could turn out to be kind of pleasant, decent people. They're constituted by the responses that Dickens evokes from us toward them. By contrast, we can adopt alternative attitudes toward an ordinary thing without any particular attitude, be it amusement, awe, tenderness, and so on, making the thing what it is. So to close, I think this distinguishes the grounds of our responses to sculptures from the grounds of our responses to ordinary objects around us, ordinary artifacts. But of course, it doesn't itself distinguish sculpture from other art forms, for the phenomenon of external features of an artwork determining our response to what is internal to the imagining of elicits is perfectly general. I'm giving you examples from literature. What I would suggest here is only that the project of distinguishing sculpture from the other arts is a project of identifying what proprietary resources sculpture has for shaping our attitudes toward the states of affairs that sculpture has us imagine. I've mentioned a few, and I assume any such identification has to be indexed in an ever-changing practice in which new resources for sculptural representation are discovered, and old ones laid aside. But a uh, full catalog of all those devices would um, require at least another paper. Okay, so I'll stop there. Thank you.